So the uh, the other trailer that has had me absolutely upside down is the uh, the King's Man trailer. Ah, which I, I I love that they're taking the Kingsman thing and going back to World War One and bringing Ray Fiennes in. It that looks like a lot of fun. The original King's Man. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> From which the Kingsman would. Yeah. But it, but it, it looks it looks fun. It looks like they it, it's smart. They they said you know what we did everything that we could with these characters and with. Uh, you know the the Colin Firth thing. They the, the second one was not good. Yeah. With Julianne Moore in the jungle doing putting people in blenders and it's making drugs. It slipped into a little bit of camp. Yeah, it got too campy. So this camp. this feels like they're getting their bearings right again. I, I I'm I'm getting a very I'm getting excited for the fall season. It looks like it's going to be fun. That's for sure. Yeah. And a couple of good looking dramatic movies. We talked about uh, the Dolomite, Eddie Murphy yeah. thing last week. Yeah. So you know, it yeah, could be nice. It's going to be good. It's going to be all good. Um, you know, listen, email us at godsdigigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. Uh, tell us what your, we're I mean, just real, real curious. We want to know what your movie going habits are becoming like with these subscription systems, mm. uh, these subscription plans at, uh, at Regal and AMC and Alamo Draft House is about to, to launch one as well. Uh, is this is this changing the way that you uh, do your movie going and your movie watching? Are you going to do less at home and more at the theater? Uh, are you looking for a family plan? Is it still too expensive? Is it too far? Do you prefer one over the other? Just curious. Uh, email us, gods at digigods.com, gods at cinegods.com. Just want to know, what do the... Uh, the emergence of uh, affordable subscription plans. What's that doing to your movie-going habits? Uh, all of which, of course, is an outgrowth of Movie Pass, which went yeah, out of business because yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they they didn't realize how much people wanted to go to the movies. Yeah, cheap. Yeah, uh, and uh, and uh, and and the, you know, I, I don't know. What's the difference here? What is the thing that is going on? Other than they're all broken up, as opposed to, um, what's the thing that'll make it different this time? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the. Uh, it's what I always say about Netflix, too, that Netflix's problem is they're not backstopped by anything. Mm. They don't have a business to sort of, a core business to absorb the losses if they make a miscalculation. Like Amazon. Amazon, Apple, all these other guys have a core business that absorbs things. Disney, right? Disney Disney really can afford to lose a lot of money on movies because they sell toys, they have theme parks, they, they, they have all the rest of it. Yeah, no movie is going to take, not going to have a Heaven's Gate situation exactly. with Disney. Yeah. No. And uh, so, yeah, that's, you know, you're, you're looking for, for backstopped business and the theaters, they can afford to have a subscription plan not work because they're still charging per movie. Yeah. They still charge for concessions. Yeah. Uh, they have other ways of balancing the books. Yeah, no matter what you pay to get into that movie to uh, for the ticket to get in to see that movie, they're trying to sell you something else anyway. Yeah. Uh, that uh, will have uh, you know a, a value. So look, you know. I you know when I was when I was a lowly man's theater assistant manager, one of my jobs was to do the ordering. I would do all the concessions ordering, and I'll tell you, it, you become very aware of what a ripoff it is when you're ordering a fifty sack, a fifty pound sack of kernel corn for whatever it was, four or five bucks. And uh, you're ordering giant cartons of syrup that get turned into Coca-Cola and Seven Up and yeah. whatever else it is, mm -hmm. and and you realize and you do the math, you're like, wow, we're 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 spending pennies on this stuff, and then 
it winds up being sold for two seventy five, three seventy five, four seventy five. You're you're you're. It's like a it's like a thousand percent markup. Yeah, the margins on the concessions have it's always enormous. been perfectly insane. It's crazy, and it's particularly large with with uh, fountain drinks because it, it's oh, yeah. it's, it's pennies per uh, less than it's pennies for sixteen ounces. What and, you and, and you charge? They what, pay. We pay dollars. Yeah, it 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 literally is pennies. I mean, for for popcorn and soft drink, it's pennies. It's crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. Even more so now. Well, we're going to start with some foreign language stuff. Uh, some really, really interesting foreign language stuff has come down the pike lately, and uh, I want to make sure you are all aware of it. A couple of great ones from Facets, who, uh, you know, Facets is where a lot of the, the more obscure stuff goes because others just don't know how to monetize it. And uh, there's some, a couple of really, really interesting ones here. One from 1963, the other one from 2001. Uh, from uh, 1963... And this is really, really historic. This is from a filmmaker, an Iranian filmmaker named, and I'm going to murder his name. And I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I just, you know, I, I apologize in advance. Um, Farug, Farok, Farokzad, Farug Farokzad, uh, whose sister Puran Farokzad is is actually interviewed here. And uh, the, the if you're not familiar with Farogzad, this is this is a, a legendary Iranian um, poet and a filmmaker, a woman who uh, foreshadows all of the um, all of the Iranian new wave that emerged in the in the 80s and the 90s. And uh, so this is some of the. This is some of the rare uh, opportunities that you may have to actually see Iran, Iran from a period that predates what we're accustomed to seeing in Iranian movies, in, in Persian cinema. And uh, I, I know very little about uh, Farouk Zad as a poet or as a filmmaker, but this is a really, really interesting uh, uh, assemblage it's not a narrative film it's an assemblage of uh, of footage and with poetry in many cases recited over the the footage so it's sort of like cinematic tone poems and really interesting and it gives you a wonderful look at what the the sort of the the, the grit and the soul of of Iran was in the 1960s at least when it was a very different society and uh, you know the history of Iran is really fascinating. Everything before the Iranian New Wave and before the Iranian Revolution of 1979 mm. really is kind of a lost world to a lot of us. So this is a uh, this is really a, a beautiful, beautiful movie, beautifully shot, uh, rare footage. And uh, if you if this is your cup of tea, you really, really want to uh, want to get that on the shelf. The one from 2001 is a Uruguayan film, uh, which oh, and I should say the title of this too. The, the this is the house is black. Uh, otherwise known as Kanesia Ast, a film by Farug Farogzad. The House is Black mm -hmm. is the actual title of it from Facets. Beautiful. Um, the uh, the Uruguayan film is 25 Watts uh, by the filmmakers Pablo, Juan Pablo Rabella and Pablo Stoll. And um, this is actually an outgrowth of a certain class of American films like Shirley... Um, uh, oh, uh, Shirley uh, Clark's uh, Shirley Clark, uh, yeah. yeah, Shirley Clark's films, um, and and uh, a lot of the more independent films kind of grew out of Shirley Clark. But it is a um, this is basically looking at uh, at Uruguay through the eyes of kind of young millennial, you know, slackers and 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 uh, layabouts, and it all takes place over one t uh, one day, shot in black and white, very 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 low budget. 
and uh, wants to get really inside what's going on in Uruguay today with, you know, this very, very sort of layabout uh, generation of youth. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's not a really a flattering portrait of Uruguay, but it is provocative, and it does have uh, some really, really interesting visuals in it. Again, written and directed by Juan Pablo Rabella and Pablo Stoll. Recently, you're among the nations that you uh, recently um, uh, legalized marijuana. Oh, that's or, right. Or, or, yeah. yeah, that's right. Might might answer the question. Uh, Cohen Media, we love Cohen. Uh, I'm very proud of Cohen. Uh, Tim and I have done uh, commentary for Cohen. Yes. And uh, full disclosure, and Cohen, we should point out, recently purchased the Landmark Cinemas, Landmark Theaters chain of cinemas from uh, Mark Cuban. So it is no longer attached to Magnolia. Uh, now the now Cohen owns Landmark, and uh, you can tell when you go to a Landmark, they're touting all of their art stuff. It's yeah. a it's a much artier vibe now, and uh, kind of like the the, the Limleys used to be back in the day, yeah. and then the Limleys did the thing where they started bringing in mainstream movies. Yep. Particularly to all the, the the locations, and 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 now it seems to Cohen wants to swing it back the other way. Very odd. Very well, odd. Well, this something's really, going on with Limleys too, if I recall correctly. Didn't yeah, Limleys for sale now. They're for sale. Yeah. They're for sale. Yeah. yeah, it looks like Netflix yeah. is gonna might might uh, swoop in and you know and oh, eat them. because Netflix bought the uh, what the Egyptian or they were oh, in, they, they were invested in, in the Egyptian, invested in the Egyptian and yeah. they yeah they did buy something yeah you know well, it, it, which is all strategic and has to yeah, do with they can release films and. And, you know, a whole different story. Well, the uh, the Cohen film here is absolutely terrific. And this didn't uh, stay in theaters very long, but I hope people discover it on Blu-ray. The uh, is Girls of the Sun, Girls of the Sun, which is uh, the based in the actual factual fighting women of Kurdistan, uh, the, the Girls of the Sun Battalion, which is, is a real thing. These are women who went out there and, and, and just put themselves on the line along with all the men to fight for... Uh, Fight for Kurdish homeland. Um, this is uh, this is sort of also seen through the eyes of a French journalist who is you know uh, writing about them and covering them, and it is uh, it is really uh, it is a fascinating movie, and it it it's just so vibrant and so urgent and so uh, right now, and has some really really superb performances in it, in, uh, including the superb Iranian actress Golshif Farahani. Who's in all kinds of things? You've seen her in, you know, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and on and on and on. But uh, she is just magnificent in it. It's a really, really good film. It's really gritty. It's beautifully done and directed by Ava Husson. And uh, what a what a terrific movie that is. Um, if you're a fan of Bunuel, you got a couple of old Bunuel movies here. It's really interesting. So last week on Film Week, uh, I we covered a, uh, a an animated film that is based on. Bunuel's life and based on Bunuel it's an it's a straight up animated movie a Spanish animated movie about Bunuel's second film which was a short documentary mm-hmm. uh, about the, uh, the, the 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 impoverished people living in the mountains in in Spain it has footage from his movies so it got me onto a little bit of a Bunuel kick just as Kino releases a couple of uh, Bunuel films on Blu-ray Death in the Garden and The Milky Way What's not often realized is Bunuel didn't hit his stride till he was in his fifties and sixties. Yeah, that's when he really hit yeah. his stride. Yeah, he made a lot of movies that didn't really make much of a mark before that. Uh, but uh, these are from the fifties and the sixties. This is you know this is Bunuel is fifty six. He was born in nineteen hundred, so he's fifty six when he made Death in the Garden. He's sixty nine when he made The Milky Way in nineteen sixty nine, and. Uh, 
he is he is at his level best with both of these. This is the surrealist, absolutely just owning it. Um, Death in the Garden is uh, probably the lesser known of them, but it is uh, it has some beautiful performances. Simone Signore is absolutely terrific. It's uh, it's really all about uh, kind of it's an adventure story done in the style of a of a surrealist of a Spanish surrealist. And, uh, you know, this, all of the, these shenanigans, these military shenanigans, these colonial shenanigans taking place in the, in the jungle. And uh, Simone Signore is absolutely terrific. Uh, Charles Vanell is this really mysterious guy and is also really, really good. And Michel Piccoli, uh, yeah. always classic audio commentary by uh, Sam Dayan, who's a film critic. And then uh, The Milky Way is a little bit controversial uh, because it is, it's pushing the envelope even on what we normally expect from Bunuel as a surrealist. It's uh, based on, it's kind of inspired by, loosely based on uh, some 16th century novels, and it uh, compares maybe a little bit, it's like a surrealist, Barry Lyndon might be a way to kind of describe it. It's a, a bit of a road trip. Uh, road trip through some some weird experiences and some strange, uh, unexpected, uh, sometimes very very disturbing events, and um, it has a lot to say about religion, modern day religion in Spain and in elsewhere. And uh, it was produced by Serge Silberman and and with the the production manager Uli Picard, which is worth noting because they're the ones who were supposed to do uh, David Lean's last film Nostromo. I actually went to the offices uh, in Paris. I don't remember how I got in. I wrote, I wrote Serge Silberman. This is like back in 1992 or something. I wrote Serge Silberman a letter. Somehow got invited to the offices when he wasn't there. And uh, Uli Picard, the production manager, showed me the boards for Nostromo all around the office. <laughs> oh, Gave man. me a tour of the office. Uh, that was back when you could do crazy stuff like that. So anyway, from 1969, The Milky Way. And from 1956, Death in the Garden. Two really superb Blu-rays of uh, some classic Bunuel movies. And uh, then I'll turn it over to Tim to do a little TV here in a moment. I want to make mention of... Well, actually, here, I'll do this first. Uh, we have another Django movie. Mm. Django the Bastard. You ever heard of this? Did not know that I, one. I, I thought I knew all my... Is it, I a, uh, it's a, it's a, is it a Sergio? No. Corbucci? This is, no, this is... Well, the other Sergio. Sergio Garone. Sergio Garone. Okay. I, I never even... There's so many Django movies that I didn't even know existed. This is from Synapse. Uh, it's Sergio Garone directed this and co-wrote it with Anthony Steffen, and uh, it's a, yet another freaking Django movie. Um, it's a lot like it actually. It, t- it seems to take more of its inspiration from um, some Clint Eastwood movies, mm. some of Clint spaghetti westerns. You know, a few dollars more, more Leone esque than more Leone esque. It's it, uh, and it also has uh, the story is a lot like High Plains Drifter which actually came afterwards. So you got to kind of wonder if somebody didn't get an inspiration there or something. But um, yeah, it's not, it doesn't really have anything in common with the other Django's other than the fact that it's got a, it's an Italian film with a mysterious guy named Django in it. And um, he kills people and lays in and it's, it's pretty well made. I mean, it's not, you know, perfect spaghetti Western. It's certainly not on the, on the same level as the others, but there it is. It's another Django movie, Django the Bastard on Blu-ray from Synapse. Mm. And uh, here are the three I want to spend just a moment on, too. Uh, Jean Gabin, legendary, oh. legendary uh, French actor. We, we mostly 
know him from um, uh, Grand Illusion. Mm-hmm. But Jean Gabin made a lot of really, really good movies. Yeah, and for a lot of very important directors. For a lot that, of important who directors. Who crossed that... Uh, that that uh, band of French directors from the classical ones to the new wave guys from the 30s right into the 60s yeah. 30s into the 60s for 30 years he was he was a guy and uh, he, he's you know he's he's just he's a legendary figure and we have three terrific Jean Gabin films here and you know not by slacky directors either uh, the first one is a Michel Carnet movie Michel Carnet who made Children of Paradise. Um, and, uh, and this is, um, with Jean Gabin, Michel Simon, and and Michel Morgan, the beautiful Michel Morgan. This is Port of Shadows. Oh, yeah. Port of Shadows is an amazing movie, um, which is based on a novel, a very famous novel, that is all about the, um, uh, the, 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 the road that goes to the port city of Le Havre. And uh, it stars Jean Gabin as a deserter who's just trying to sort of get his life back on track. And it gets into this really great noirish uh, turns and twists with, you know, these really shady figures. Beautifully shot, fantastic cinematography, really, really great performances from uh, Michelle Morgan especially, who is just, you know, it's in black and white. And you'd swear that it's somehow her eyes are blue, just the same. <laughs> oh, yeah. They just pop. It's really, really a very, very cool film. Has an introduction uh, from a French film critic and a documentary as well. That is from 1938. And then we get into Jean Gabin, slightly more grizzled and gray in the 1950s. And this is a little bit more, uh, more in the new wave style. Uh, Jacques Becker directs him in the next one, which is Touche pas au Grisby, and meaning uh, don't, don't, don't mess with Grisby, because uh, Grisby will mess you up. Old and gangster, yeah. Jean Gabin is here with a couple of really hot young people in Lino Ventura and Jean Moreau who are just chewing it up with the uh, with the new wave. And you know what? He owns them both. Yeah. He just owns them both. He is uh, he's just, he's just still so the man. Um, and this is a gangster story. You know, it's it's also a noir, but boy, it's a, it's an awful lot of fun. And uh, this also has a film critic uh, commentary by Nick Pinkerton, an interview with with uh, Jean Becker. And an interview with Jean Moreau. Uh, it's all really, uh, all really fun to kind of set it in its in its place. And then the most recent one came from 1955. Here, this is uh, Razia sur la Schnouf by Henri de Coin, D E C O I N. And this is also with Lino Ventura. And once again, totally owns him. This only has a commentary with uh, Nick Pinkerton, which is fine. Um, this is also based on a novel, and uh, in this one, Jean Gabin plays kind of a master criminal who goes back from the U.S., leaves the U.S., goes back to France, and um, winds up getting into a uh, into a kind of a, getting involved in a big drug distribution operation, and um, where it goes from there is is pretty gritty and pretty pretty grueling. It really. It's kind of like an early version of the French Connection from the other side. If, if truth be told, that's it's like the beginning of all of that stuff in 1955, and it's a great double feature with the French Connection. It really uh, it, it it compares very very favorably. Uh, Henri Duquin, not overly known in the United States, but still a really really sharp filmmaker. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Uh, TV, TV, TV. Yes, do some TV. Um, uh, we, uh, let's start with uh, some really good British stuff here. Grant Chester. Uh, the complete fourth season. The complete fourth fourth season. I rather uh, enjoy. Well, I, I enjoy just about all the British <laughs> mysteries, but I particularly enjoy the ones that are set 
sometime in the past. Very often they're set in the 30s or the 40s. Uh, it is every, occasionally in the 60s as Endeavor, which is another one that we have here, both from PBS, uh, Masterpiece Mystery Theater. So this is just good stuff. So Grandchester, season four. Uh, Endeavor, uh, season six. That one's set in the 60s. They both uh, follow the exploits of these. Uh, one of them is a, um, a, a, a young priest uh, who's in a town and he just finds himself in the, in the middle of all these mysteries in the middle 50s, late 50s, uh, post-war, before the pop movement, though, uh, solving crimes and whatnot. Uh, you, you have to love that. It's a really sort of thought look at that stuff. Same thing with uh, Sean Evans as, uh, as uh, Endeavor. Uh, as, uh, it's, it's, he's just a good cop working in the 60s as a, as a young constable, a young DI, unraveling these crimes. I love the fact that both of these shows eschew uh, all of the sort of modern day technology and they both depend on the sort of flat foot detective work of, 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 of you know, uh, yeah. characters gum, from gum back. Gumshoeing gum it up. You know, so whether it's the actual yeah. cop or whether it's the priest pretending to be a cop, they go around and they find evidence and people say things. Nobody makes a cell phone call. Nobody looks anything up on Google and they have to yeah. figure out who did it uh, anyway both fantastic shows from Masterpiece Theater six complete season of Endeavor fourth of Grant Chester um, then we uh, you, we move all the cop drama to the United States of America and we get ourselves the ninth season of Blue Bloods uh, uh, Tom Selleck you look I, I, I still live with him as Magnum but it's a nutty thing that he's been on this show for longer than Mag Magnum's run yeah, uh, although Magnum is back again in another good figure, but you know, I don't know. Whatever. When I, when I, when I, when an actor plugs himself as a particular character in my yeah. mind, they're going to be that character for, yeah. henceforth and forever. And uh, unless you're William Shatner and you're able to turn the corner and make Captain Kirk a a a, uh, a shadow of uh, of T.J. Hooker of T.J. Hooker, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we wish <laughs> which right? happened for me for a moment. Yeah, yeah. T.J. Hooker was a thing, and I and I still will think of him and think of T.J. Hooker. Yeah. Now when I think of him, I just think of him as or selling. Denny Crane or Denny Crane. Yeah. yeah, I think of him as selling uh, uh yeah CPAP machines, whatever. The hell he's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, nearly an hour's worth of special features on this ninth season of Blue Bloods. Just picks up after a couple of. The characters have gotten married. They're both partners, and, and Tom is trying to figure out whether or not that's a good idea. I rather enjoy uh, Blue Bloods. I don't watch all the Chicago shows. These are all yeah. is part yeah. of the whole Chicago show family, but Blue Bloods uh, sticks in there for me. Same thing happened here. NCIS New Orleans, we are into the fifth season of this show. It's crazy, right? Scott Bakula, again, more seasons of this show than he had on Star Trek Enterprise and that he had on Quantum Leap, which is almost 30 years ago now. So these, these are guys who have held down three or four, relatively speaking, long-run series, relatively speaking, long-run series, over the course of, you know, 30 years or give or take, I mean, in, in the case of Tom Selleck, even longer. That's a hell of an achievement. And if you want to look at the guys who are the, uh, or ladies, but mostly guys who are the players in terms of having uh, power and making money in Hollywood, look at, at folks who've had several long-running series on television. You'll find that they're always executive producers and producers on these shows, and you'll find that they, uh, they, they get to direct and do all kinds of things. Anyway, uh, uh, this is a six-disc disc collection with 24 episodes, all kinds of new stuff on it. Uh, this was a good show that I rather enjoyed. Um, uh, NCI, I, I rather enjoyed this more than I do some of the other NCIS's, yeah. and certainly the one set in a L.A., which I never cared with LL Cool J, and yeah. I never cared for that. Got a, got a few more foreign here. Uh, Babylon is a movie you've probably never heard of. This has never been released on video in the U.S. It was released briefly, theatrically. This is, I'm, I'm kind of amazed. Kino went and really found, a, found quite, a, quite a, a, a gem here. 
this is um this is really one of the more interesting uh British kind of gritty indies from that uh from right around the the, the late seventies, early eighties, the Thatcher period that gave us Stephen Frears and uh Mike Lee and Ken Loach and all these guys who came of age at that time and Sammy and Rosie got laid mm-hmm. and my beautiful laundrette and a lot of movies came out of that that were dealing with a lot of working class issues and, and various different perspectives, all of them from filmmakers that had worked in British television. Uh, so this is from that milieu, but it's also very different, and it kind of precedes them in many respects, too. Babylon is the story of a, uh, a reggae DJ, a young reggae DJ, Jamaican guy in, in uh, Thatcher-era England, who's just dealing with all of the absolutely horrendous sociological stuff that's going on at the time. And uh, this was actually originally premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1980, directed by Franco Rosso. And uh, never really made it here until um, years and years later, I think. And it got a very, very thin release. But here's also what makes it really, really worth checking out. Uh, this was shot by Chris Menges mm-hmm. before The Killing Fields, mm-hmm. before he became a director and did, you know, World Apart, all those things. And it's got an, it's, it's really tremendously well done, especially for, for a low-budget film. You just see the genius of Chris Menges and how it's shot. Written by Martin Stellman, who wrote Quadrophenia, who already you know he knows the he knows that that scene, that gritty uh, blue collar scene, very very well. And there are tons of extras on here as well. They interview Franco Rosso, they interview Stellman, uh, Brinsley Ford, who stars in it. They talk to him as well, the producer. Um, and uh, there's really also a cool short documentary on here uh, on Linton Kwesi, who is uh, who, whose writings basically inspire this. Um, uh, it's it's a it's a pretty pretty terrific show, and there's also a Q and A with the uh, cast and crew, which was uh, recorded at the BFI South Bank just about ten years ago. Also have the uh, new Blu-ray of last year at Marienbad from oh, Alain René. Alain. Uh, this is from a 4K restoration. This is one of the legendary films of the French New Wave. Here's the thing, uh, and this won the Venice Film Festival in 1961. It's a great film, but it's also it also makes no sense whatsoever. No, it is. It's a dream. Oh, yeah. A bunch it's of just people standing dream. around as- asking sort of existential questions. <laughs> and sometimes not even asking them, just thinking them. Yeah, thinking. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you're never quite sure where you are in the chronology yeah. or where you are in reality. Oh, people float out of that film and never come back. Yeah, they, they <laughs> just kind of, is it in the past? Is it in someone's imagination? Is this period? Are they wearing period clothes in the present day? Are they wearing present day clothes in a period? Where are we? Yeah. Have they met yet? Now is this after they met? Is this before they met? Is this a flashback? Is it a flash forward? Does it matter? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yet somehow all hauntingly beautiful. And it all kind of hangs together, and you're mm. always interested. Yeah. And it doesn't really go anywhere in particular, and yet it goes to a very interesting place. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, there's no way to describe it. It's just very René. It's very Alain oh, René. Oh, but uh, yeah. the 4K restoration is beautiful. Uh, the audio commentary by uh, Tim Lucas does its level best to try to guide you through this and make sense of it. So give that man an Oscar just for the effort. It's a, it's a good commentary. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's an interview with Volker Schlondorf, who is kind of the, the you know, he, know, he worked with all these guys originally. Yeah, so yeah. He, Volker he did, did a version of, uh, he did a version of Handmaid's Tale, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he did the original film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Robert Duvall and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, as well as, you know, the Oscar winning, the tin drum yeah, and a lot of yeah, other things. Yeah. But uh, and then there's a really interesting visual essay by James Quant, who is the, of course, the the main programmer at the uh, Toronto Film Festival and Toronto Film uh, Cinematheque. 
And uh, then there's a making of doc here called Memories of Last Year at Marienbad that was shot with Super 8 footage on the set. Man, is that weird. Yeah. It's really kind of disturbing. Mm. It, it, it demystifies it in a really mysterious way, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then they even throw a 1956 short film by Alain René on here called uh, Toute la Memoire du Monde, which sort of is, uh, in many respects, sort of the inspiration. It's where he was trying things out. Now, here, I'm going to tell you something. Lucio Fulci is out of his mind. <laughs> Lucio Fulci... <laughs> Look, oh, I, I, there's giallo. I don't like giallo, yeah, but right. you know, I, you can. It's gory and this and that and the other thing. And then, and okay, you're pushing the envelope. I get it. No, I'm sorry. I had, n- I was not familiar with Touch of Death until until this thing arrived from the uh, Raro video line. This is insane. This is completely bonkers. Okay, and there's, there's a, and there's a special feature on here called When Lucio Fulci Broke the Mirror. No, he broke my brain with this. <laughs> This is about a gambler, a hopeless, uh, chronic gambler, habitual gambler who's always broke. And here's how you get get this. You're gonna love this. This is how this is how he resolves his money problems whenever he's broke. Finds a rich lady, puts some moves on her, kills him, <laughs> eats him. <laughs> oh, we're not done. How does that put money in your pocket? I, though? I, I don't know. They're rich ladies. <laughs> He just he's just he's got hey I got money I'm mm. not not have killed you I've inherited the money I'm kind of hungry so mm. I got the munchies I'm gonna eat your face mm. and then best of all best of all then somebody starts imitating him ah what what hey, is good hey, what are you hey. are you kidding me come on man this is just weird uh no Fulci is basically doing nothing here other than to try to shock you the story does not hang together but it doesn't need to it 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 knows its audience. Uh, what are crazy, mad, lunacy in this insane movie. Uh, so there it is. It's, you know, Lucio Fulci doing his just weirdest of all time. Lester Parson is the name of the character. Well, anyway, yeah. Lucio Fulci, uh, Touch of Death from Raro Video on Blu-ray. Uh, I got a couple of uh, features I'll knock off before yeah. we jump back into oh, the yeah. television, including, including the collector's edition of the 1982 film Vice Squad. Yeah, uh, which stars Susan Hubley, who I must have had a crush on for a decade between about 1969, and, you know, about, about about the time of this film. Uh, yes, you know, Susan Hubley was was uh, she was yeah. like Michelle Pfeiffer before Michelle Pfeiffer. That's right. Uh, is who <laughs> That's she was. a good way of putting uh, it. Uh, directed by Gary Sharman uh, with Wings Hauser. I remember this being this very intense film about this young woman who uh, you know was a sort of something by day and put prostitute yeah. by night. Uh, one of her friends is killed. There's this pimp played by Wings Hauser named Ramrod. And and a really good excellent a good name for a pimp indeed, and a really excellent p- p- uh, performance. Uh, Wings had been on a daytime soap opera for some time, uh, uh, and uh, and this cop who's who, who's trying to bring him in, and the cop it's one of these things where the men, these two men, the pimp on one side and the kind of volatile cop on the other side, yeah. are forcing this young woman, this young prostitute, to do all kinds of things, and so she's caught in between, and it's about what she's what she decides to do about both the pimp. In the cop, and I remember loving that the most uh, about this, you know, classically sort of B yeah. expo- exploitation film. This is a straight up B exploitation film set on the streets of Hollywood. A great thing about watching this film: you watch this film, 1982, and then you watch something like uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and uh, and you get to see that vision that Quentin had of Hollywood. You know, in the, in, the, in his case, the late 60s, but nevertheless, it sort of stayed the same there for quite a while. That Hollywood is still in this movie. 
1969 Hollywood right. of Quentin is still right. in this 1982 movie. Just sort of doing what it's doing. This is a 4K scan of the original elements uh, with a really neat uh, audio commentary by uh, director Gary Sherman and uh, some interviews with the other act some of the other actors on the show, including Beverly Todd, uh, who went on to be in some Quentin Tarantino films, including uh, Jackie Brown. Um, so I'll knock off that one there. A lot of fun there. And then this one, The Harder They Come, starring Jimmy Cliff again. Uh, a really fantastic film, gangsta, uh, it's sort of a crime. Uh, and this has been on Criterion movie. before. This comes this, out every so often, but this is a really nice set. It's from, a just, from, look. From this, this looks good for sure. Uh, for one thing, it's a three disc set. Yeah, all kinds of special features here. It's featuring Jimmy Cliff, all sorts of other short films and whatnot uh, in, in the movie. And this is just this was a groundbreaking film. It was hugely groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah it really was because it came out. It was it was sort of in the black exploitation moment, but that's not what it is. That's not what it is at it's, all. Yeah. It's uh, it's American independent. It's a little bit of the Jamaican, you know. There's a moment where there's a Jamaican new wave. It kind of, it's it just, it's not, it's in, it's uncategorizable. It really is. Uh, it's just its own unique, precious moment in time. And it's eternally hip and happening too. It this is. Movie. And the music never goes out of style. This is the collector's edition. The harder they fall from 1972 from Shout Select. Uh, got some interesting uh, other classics here or, t- or library titles uh, from uh, as long as we're on the classics line. Film Movement Classics has just released on Blu-ray The Reflecting Skin by Philip Ridley which was a 1990 movie with a very young Viggo Mortensen in it and uh, and Lindsay Duncan who it just is always magnificent. I just adore Lindsay Duncan. But um yeah, this is this is a film that had completely fallen off my radar. I uh, I don't know that I even saw it when it came out originally. I think I may have seen it on VHS at some point. I know I did not. But uh, this is this is a kind of a mystery thriller set in Idaho of the 1950s, uh, centering around a uh, an English woman who is a widow, and. Um, uh, let's just say that that people start to suspect something about her that is rather outrageous, and um, th- th- this leads to a romance with Viggo Mortensen that is 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 fairly dangerous. And you know, it's uh, I guess the best way to say this is like this is kind of rural gothic noir. Mm. It's like modern rural gothic noir. Yeah. You know, that's that's sort of the thing that happened in the last few decades is that noir moved out of the urban environments, went, out of the cities, yeah, and went, went into yeah. the, yeah. The, the countryside and the mountains. Yeah, and small even towns. southern gothic lives in the zone. But even yeah, rural gothic. gothic, southern gothic, yeah. So this is, you know, it, it, and it's an interesting film. Uh, Philip Ridley hasn't really gone on to do much since then really as a as a filmmaker but what a really uh what a really interesting thing there's a commentary by ridley and a uh an essay and a featurette and then uh also here's another weird blast of a, a movie that i'd forgotten about um shortcut to happiness if i went to you and i said there's this tr- there's this movie that has anthony hopkins and alec baldwin and dan Aykroyd and jennifer love hewitt and kim cattrall and it's called Shortcut to Happiness. You would say I wouldn't. I would remember those people all being on a movie, and I Get don't them. remember that movie. No, I don't. I don't remember. I I, I vaguely remember this. Anyway, this is uh, this is from from like maybe a, a decade ago or so, uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and this just went nowhere, and probably for good reason. It's uh, it's effectively an attempt to update Devil and Daniel Webster uh. in a really not very successful way. It tries to it doesn't it tries to sort of lose its classics bearings and, and classic bearings, make it a little more funny than it should be, a little uh more uh, romantic than it probably should be. Uh you know, uh, Alec Baldwin plays the guy who's, you know, supposed to sell his soul 
and uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt plays the devil. There's a twist. And um, Anthony Hopkins just kind of walks through this thing. It's really a very peculiar movie. It, it just doesn't all kind of hang together. But, you know, it is, it is an, uh, a historical oddity. And then Mothra is out in a, uh, in a, in a, in a, uh, a steel case from Mill Creek. Mothra is a ridiculous monster of all of the kaiju from the, the, all, the, the world of Godzilla. It's just absolutely absurd. It's a giant moth, for crying out loud. Just get big, giant bug spray and take that thing out. <laughs> it's all you need. You just think. need bug spray, for crying out loud. Stupid thing. Yeah, it's not but Godzilla. It has, a, it has a following. It has a following. You know, the atomic bomb made, created a big, giant moth, and now it's a monster. Whatever. Uh, so it's out there. It has Japanese and U.S. versions on it. Uh, the one of the latter of which uh, has uh, an extra, or the the former of which, the Japanese version has an extra eleven minutes, and then there's an audio commentary with uh, some Japanese uh, film historians by the name of Steve Rifle and Ed Godzewski, Godzeshevsky, something like that, and uh, there it is. It's got it's it's Mothra in a, in a friggin' steel case collectible case it's ridiculous yeah uh dip back over to a little tv yeah american gods season two uh got into season one of this interesting sort of premise there this guy gets out of a prison he meets his name shadow he meets this guy named wednesday and the next thing you know uh we're in this television series that involves uh you know the actual gods of lore uh, mankind and the battle that they are engaged in oh, for boy. supremacy over blah 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 and all this kind of stuff. It looks uh, not 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 as uh, uninteresting as I'm making it sound. It's actually kind of fun. The visuals are really what makes this show, though. It's a gorgeously shot show. I'll give it that. Uh, special features include uh, all kinds of behind the scenes stuff, including uh, this is all out of the Neil Gaiman universe, yeah, by the way. Sure. Um, um, Lucifer and all those other things. Uh, like, so, you know, if particularly for fans of Gaiman and, 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 and the little universes that he creates, American Gods is an interesting sort of mm-hmm. undertaking. Um, did not deal with the second season, so but I'll assume it picks up fairly well where the first season left off and goes where it goes. Uh, Blu-ray and digital there. The Walking Dead, the complete ninth season. Uh, you know, what can you say? Uh, the, the, the dead continue to walk, and apparently they will be for a while. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, some of the sequels have not done as well as uh, this this original series. This is, of course, the original series. But fans of the show are fans of the show, and I, and I suppose they'll go on for a bit. Um, I don't really remember what happens in the ninth season of the, <laughs> the, the, the complete season of The Walking Dead because I tapped out after season four. Yeah. Uh, you know, enough zombies for me after season four. Sorry. That's the way that, that goes. Uh, special features include deleted scenes, uh, a, a memorandum, whispers behind the mask, all kinds of neat sort of bonus material, including some extra scene stuff from episode 908. Arrow, the complete seventh season. If I'm not mistaken, I think Arrow is tapping out after this season. This current season that we're in right now, I think, will be their last. Um, Again, uh, stuck around with Arrow for about four seasons uh, before I had to go and, uh, you know, file my nails or do whatever the hell else I was doing that was more interesting than Arrow. Arrow was not one of the series, uh, one of the DC series that caught, did capture me in the way that Flash or Supergirl. But it started it. It started started it all. Yeah, 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 which is an interesting thing. And it hung in there again. This is the... Uh, this is the 11th season, and frankly, it's better DC than any DC that has been made into into That's mainstream sure. cinema. That's for dead gum sure. Yeah, better DC than any of that. Anyway, uh, Oliver Queen as the Arrow, uh, uh, roaming around with that bow and arrow, doing doing stuff. 
How, how is he in Hawkeye? How are he in Hawkeye any different? In uh, you know, the the difference being, I guess, because you know there are these facsimiles between DC and Warner. Oh yeah, yeah. There, oh. There, there's Flash, and then there's Quicksilver, and on and on. You know, yeah, you, yeah, you Superman, can find uh, Captain you can Marvel. find the, the like the the, the, the facsimiles. So uh, between the two archers. I think Green Arrow was always the cooler one because mm. he did things with the arrows. Like Hawkeye was just a good a, shot, a really good shot. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Green Arrow would be like, "Oh, I like like whatever whatever uh, Green Lantern could come up with with the ring." Green Arrow would be like, oh, "I got an arrow just like that." Like, <laughs> that, that, that quiver had five hundred different kinds of weird arrows yeah. that all did stuff that Batman couldn't. And even they never seem to run out. Either one never. of these guys. That's just that was always kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, there for sure. Uh, from 1954, the series Public Defender, which is a series that not a whole f- lot of folks remember. This is from uh, 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 the Silver series. Uh, this is a series that not a whole lot of folks remember that I rather enjoyed because it was probably the first series about the Public Defender at the time that a thing called a Public Defender first came into being. We, yep. we, we think that there's always been a thing called a public defender throughout history that you know you had a right to it, but no, no. The Miranda right and the right to a public defender yeah. are relatively recent things uh, are, are, are across the course of history of things. And this show could see that that was a new thing uh, that, uh, that, that, that came into the public sphere and spoke to it, and I rather liked it quite a lot. Anyway, uh, ran from 1954 to 1955. Uh, black and white, uh, well done, like the stories, yep. interesting crime drama, sort of set from the point of view of the guy trying to make sure that the innocent uh, do not go to prison for things they did not do. Uh-huh. Every, by the time you get the law and order, it all changes, and the yeah, shows start to, to, to start to, to point themselves at the prosecutors. And, yeah. and we're looking at everything from the prosecutor's point of view. It basically was Perry Mason and this guy. Mm. Who were working, you know, uh, from the other side of the thing. I love the Murdoch Mysteries. This is the Murdoch Mysteries collection, season nine and twelve. I just love the Murdoch Mysteries. Yeah, uh, a Canadian series uh, set at the turn, I guess, the last century, more yeah. or less. Right, the turn of the yeah. last century. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and it's just a, it's 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 a Sherlock Holmesy, but not really. It's not Sherlock yeah. Holmes, and they're engaging and using a whole lot of the scientific innovations that came up at the turn of the last century, which Murdoch engages in in order to solve crimes. I love the fact that the coroner in this show is a woman, uh, and uh, and uh, you know, look, it's not bones or anything like that, but it is smart. Uh, the mysteries are really, really good, and I love the way they used the science. They lean into the science during this Edwardian, Edwardian period in Toronto. I also love, love the fact that it's actually not just shot in Canada. It's set in Canada. It's set in Toronto. So we're going to talk about some Arrow and some Criterion stuff now, some really great releases. Uh, Arrow just keeps killing it after being so such a cool uh, brand overseas. They are really starting to compete very heavily with the special editions of Criterion releases. They have now released Akio Jisoji's The Buddhist Trilogy. Now, Jisoji is a really, really interesting uh, director. Uh, Jisoji worked on everything from Ultraman to uh, all kinds of, you know, really fringy stuff on, on, uh, that was on Japanese television, Japanese theaters. Guys just always worked. And, um, but he also made a really interesting trilogy known as the Buddhist trilogy, which is very poetic and artful and very not very typical of what he what his other work was necessarily uh, what his other work consisted of. Uh, the three films are This Transient Life, uh, Mandala, and Poem. And the 
they these are they're they're gritty. Don't get me wrong. They're not just sort of languid. You know, they're it, it, he's not Ozu. Mm. Um, but but what he but he really d- is pushing the envelope on on what is and is not uh, what what are and are not the the normal tools of filmmaking for Japanese cinema at the time. And uh, these are all really really interesting films. Poem, which is as black and white and just beautiful as can be, is um, basically the story of it, that's I would say probably the best of the three films, but it's the story of a um, a young servant boy, and his who is kind of trapped in a in a in a battle of wits between his brothers, and uh, it, it's. It, it, it says a lot about you know disenfranchised youth and broken families at that particular point in time in in Japanese society. It's uh, it's really really quite powerful. Uh, Mandala is the only color film of these, and uh, it is uh, very very difficult to watch sexually. It's it's it, it's deals with with violence and some things that are very very tough to watch. But in the overall breadth of the the trilogy, it's uh, it's really really uh, worth checking out. The one that is most famous, of course, is this Transient Life, which won an award at the 1970 Locarno Film Festival, and uh, which is, you know, about a, a very, very wealthy brother and sister combo and uh, trying to sort of uh, find their way in the world despite super traditional parents. It's uh, and it goes in a in a place that you might expect for a Japanese movie, but not want. Mm. Uh, if I say to you, it's a story of a brother and a sister. Yeah. I'll let you. I'll let you yeah, do well. the math on the rest of it. Yeah. Um, mm. Also from Arrow is uh, the very famous Alice Sweet Alice by Alfred Soule. This is kind of a legendary cult film. It's been out a number of times on uh, on uh, uh, Blu-ray and DVD. It has. Um, it's you know. Uh, it basically Brooke Shields gets ma- gets murdered by a, a, a crazy lunatic. And um, her parents then have to uh, begin to face the possibility that maybe it's her sister that's killed her mm. and is killing other people. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a 1960s slasher film that has kind of been elevated to art film status and not entirely undeservedly. Uh, the audio commentary by Richard Harlan Smith makes that case. There's also an archival commentary with uh, Alfred Soule and his editor, and tons of other extras on here that's, that that argue for why this should be elevated beyond just being a 1970s slasher film. Al Pacino and Cruising, uh, uh, William Friedkin's very controversial movie that was considered uh, inflammatory at the time because of the way that it depicted uh, the Castro district in uh, in San Francisco, the way that it p- depicted gay culture at that point in time, considered uh, a dis- a film that was bigoted in in its stereotypes. I think it's a mistake to do that in hindsight. Uh, it really is very faithful to the novel written by Gerald Walker. And uh, I think you could argue that um, Friedkin's films are all pretty much the same attitude toward the world. They're yeah. all cynical. Every, yeah, yeah. This, this doesn't, this is, this is not different in tone yeah. from to Everybody everywhere is evil and trying to, you know. That's it, yeah. yeah. To live and die in L.A., uh, The French Connection, The Exorcist, they're all part and yeah, parcel of the there same. There are no good guys in Friedkin's films. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but uh, I'll tell you, it's one of Al Pacino's best performances. It really is very disturbing. Paul Sorvino gives a great performance in here as well. And um, look, it's like, you know, Pacino sort of in Serpico mode here. And uh, that's what he was doing at the time. And, uh, you know, we're moving from the 70s into the 80s. 
and it is still a legendary film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let me let me knock off the two criterions here real quickly. The uh, the first there's one that's uh, very well known, a Douglas Sirk film, and the other one by Lucille Cara, which is almost unheard of, but worth uh, mentioning. The Inland Sea is the uh, is the the uh, the less known film by Lucille Cara. And um, it is, uh, this is in both English and in Japanese. It's only an hour long, probably not even quite, made in 1991. And uh, it is, uh, it's, it's sort of a fascinating movie, but roughly inspired by a, um, uh, a, a travelogue in, from 1971 when film scholar Donald Ritchie uh, elaborated on his, um, his experiences with Japan's Inland Sea. And um, in 1991, uh, Lucille Cara decided to, to parallel that trip and go back to the same places and shoot um, the Inland Sea and sort of give it the poetic treatment that it deserved. And um, it's fascinating where this goes. There are all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, ins and outs, places that you didn't realize had anything to do with Japan and um, there are people who show up in here, notably a very famous American singer that you would never expect to. And, uh, you know, really, it's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite amazing. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful movie about a, a little-known area that is just um, one of Japan's great treasures. The 1954 film, uh, Magnificent Obsession, is one of Douglas Sirk's most famous films, uh, yes. deservedly so. Beautifully shot in color. Uh, in 1954, you know, you, you were getting really, really rich color. And uh, it's, you know, the, the movie that made Brock Hudson a star. It really is. He plays a, a playboy who uh, has an accident and then uh, has to, you know, go into surgery. And that is your instigating moment that takes you into all kinds of just beautifully elaborate melodramatic twists and turns and the color just blooms and the uh, the original Mrs. Ronald Reagan Jane Wyman uh, also stars in this and it is uh, it, boy this is really this is melodrama with a capital M it really really just goes to the ends of the earth and yet it makes uh, some very subtle observations about human nature as was the uh, the uh, the practice of uh, Douglas Sirk at the time it is really one of his very very best and um, a lot of extras on here, uh, as you would expect from a Criterion audio commentary with film scholar uh, Thomas Doherty, and uh, the um, 1935 adaptation of the same novel, Magnificent Obsession, which is restored on here for a perfect double feature of both versions. So uh, it's really great. Also an Eddie Schmidt, uh, sorry, not Eddie Schmidt, Eckert Schmidt documentary from UFA to Hollywood, Douglas Sirk Remembers, which was also made in 1991 same year as the uh, Inland Sea. Oh, interesting stuff. I love it. Um, let's see. Uh, from 1998, From the Earth to the Moon. So in 1995, Tom Hanks, Ron Howard, Apollo yeah. 13. Yep. Uh, interesting that, that this comes up at this moment of, at, yep. the, at the 50-year anniversary of all of that. Uh, and then so a couple of years later, 1998, Ron Howard with Imagine Entertainment, you know, uh, or Tom Hanks with Imagine yeah. Entertainment, put to, puts together this sort of amalgamation uh, of uh, From the Earth to the Moon, that, which tells uh, the story of the uh, putting together of the Apollo space program uh, with the combination of Tom Hanks hosting, you hear him, uh, and, and, and voiceover occasionally, and then the, the rest of a pretty interesting cast of actors playing 
uh, all of the critical figures, Nick Circeus, Deke Slayton, and, uh, and, and so on, Stephen Rudis, Chris Kraft, and they, and, they, and they sort of tell that story, not in, um, uh, in, in, a, in a format that's worthy of HBO yeah. rather yeah. than a theatrical format and builds you back into the sort of Apollo 13. This is digitally remastered uh, in HD, and it's just gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, uh, but I'm glad it was shot on film in 1998. I sure am. Uh, the Good Place, the complete third season, Ted Danson, Christian Bell in this Fairly odd and quirky comedy that, to be honest with you, I only got into uh, in the last season or so after a, a sort of twist. I'm not going to ruin anything for anybody, which uh, sort of reset the dynamic of the series and made it more interesting to me. It, it was always funny, but after that twist, it became a more interesting series, too, in the way we look at uh, the nature of people and who they are and what they are and how they behave. Uh, this, is a, this is a lot of fun. From the creators of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Recreation, sees uh, the complete third season of uh, The Good Place. Colorized, uh, I Love Lucy. Uh, look, um, the Colorized Collection, um, 16 classic episodes that were all in black and white that are all now in stunning, uh, yeah, well, stunning color. I was going to say Technicolor, but I actually don't think it's Technicolor. Um, these are beautifully done. I'm not sure how I feel about the colorizing of them all, but yep. you know, the colorization has been a thing that's been around with us now since the middle '80s. Uh, since uh, you know, I think I think Ted Turner figured out how to do that, or his scientists did anyway. Uh, look, uh, Lucy with that stunning red hair, uh, it, it's its great. These conclude all those sort of fascinating episodes that you love with the big you know, piece of bread coming out of the oven and all that kind of stuff. If you if you want to see Lucy as an actual redhead, go ahead and check it out. Special features include an explanation of the colorizing and how they do it of Lucy. Uh, you know, uh, okay, that's fine with me. I guess I'll be okay with that. Uh, let's see. I'm going to do, uh, let's see what we're going to get into here. Here, I'll, I'll do some keynotes. Okay. We've got four really cool old keynotes here. Uh, I wanted to save one of them for, for the end, but nah, I'll, I'll go with it first. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Blackmail. Uh, these are all on Blu-ray, all from the uh, Kino Studio Classics collection. Uh, from 1929, very early Hitchcock really kind of getting his, uh, getting his thriller on in Blackmail. Um, this is this is rudimentary Hitchcock, but you you see all of the tropes, all of the obsessions and the mm. themes, and the you know the, the the cameo and everything. I mean, he's really, really he's he's putting it together very, very early, even before he starts to make all of his British films. Well, before he comes to the United States, a decade, uh, more than a decade before he made Rebecca and uh, and Notorious and all of those really cool films with um, with David O. Selznick. Uh, effectively, this is just about a woman who's uh, trying to get out from under the thumb of a blackmailer. But it—it's just you know, it, you can tell that Hitchcock has a command of what's going on that other filmmakers do not. This was his first sound film, and uh, he uses it incredibly well. You can, even though it's you know based on a play, he takes it out of the realm of the theater and he um, he makes it cinematic. He's doing things with sound that other filmmakers were not doing. He sees the potential of the sound medium in ways that uh, are, are remarkable for the time. And uh, this also includes, believe it or not, a 76-minute silent version because at the time you couldn't have a sound film everywhere. So they, mm. had to, they had to make the film viable for as many theaters as possible. So even though it was a sound film... Got to make a silent version because most theaters are still silent yep. in 1929. Yep. Fascinating. And that has a really great score on it by the Mont Alto uh, Motion Picture Orchestra. And that's that, it, it's just it, – this is film history. It's beautiful. It's absolutely essential. 
and um, the film comment, the, the uh, audio commentary by Tim Lucas is absolutely just perfect. Really, really perfect. Also from Kino is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Murder, which was made the following year and shows even more evolution in his style. And uh, Nick Pinkerton does this audio commentary. There's also the 1931 German version of the same story, which uh, Hitchcock apparently also directed, and I didn't know that. It's called Mary. Uh, I had I had absolutely no clue uh, that that even it was a thing. So you learn something every day. I and I even took a Hitchcock class in college, so that was news to me. But uh, this is a um, uh, this is his third sound film, and uh, it is it, again. It, I think Blackmail is probably a better movie, but it's uh, you know this still shows the evolution of the style, and it's all about you know uh, an actress who's uh, convicted of murder. And uh, there's a you know a, a somebody who was on the jury of her trial who thinks that she's innocent, and now you know he decides to revisit the, the case and 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 uh, absolve her of her conviction. Um, very very interesting, uh, very very interesting film. Then we have on a lighter note, Sweet Charity mm. with the ageless Shirley MacLaine who is still with us. Thank goodness she is just absolutely wonderful from 1969 when Shirley MacLaine could dance up a storm oh yeah and uh, Sweet Charity is just I mean look it's Bob Fosse and uh, Shirley MacLaine doing Federico Fellini yeah. do I gotta tell you anything yeah. else yeah. Yeah. it's just Bob Fosse said why don't I take Knights of Cabiria make it an American musical have people do my Fosse 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 <laughs> dance and I'll, let, and I'll let Shirley be in the middle of it jazz hands and you know Sammy Davis Jr. and this movie and Stubby K and Ricardo Montalban and it, this thing is just Cheetah Rivera I mean it's just this is one of the all time fun movies it really is it's just super super fun music by Cy Coleman the, uh, the, the legendary Hollywood great and this is I think of all the Bob Fosse dance movies probably far and away my favorite uh, this also includes the 145-minute uh, version, newly restored in 4K, but transferred here to Blu-ray, and um, featurettes on the film, and, and Edith Head's costumes, and a Cat Ellinger commentary. Come on, get it. I it's have sweet to, uh, freaking charity. I have to, I have to uh, filter all of my thoughts about Bob Fosse and his work now yeah. through the prism of Fosse Verdon and how much of that was about Gwen Verdon. Yes. And, oh, very uh, much. Yeah, yeah, you know, so Better believe yeah, it. I'm a big fan of Bob Fosse, but now I realize I'm a bigger fan of Gwen Verdon. Uh-huh. And my last keynote here before I turn it back over to Tim is uh, Lost Highway. And boy, am I fond of this. One of my favorite David Lynch films. Yeah, I had, uh, I had a lot of fun when that movie was out. 1997, uh, edited and produced by Mary Sweeney, who was uh, wonderful enough to hire my wife to work for them at the time. And uh, produced by Deepak Nair, for whom my wife also worked uh, for many subsequent years. Casted by Joanna Ray, who we also know very well. I feel like this is family. I know everybody involved in this film. And uh, I was there for every day of this thing, yeah. uh, hearing every day about Post and what's going on. And Robert Loggia is crazy in this movie. <laughs> and Robert Blake shaved his eyebrows. Yeah, and yeah. you know, uh, uh, Richard Pryor's last that's screen right. appearance—he was so frail yeah. at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, this is body switching movie that makes no sense, no. and it doesn't need to. It's just crazy. Classic Lynch, though. It's classic Lynch. Yeah. It's totally surreal. It's psychologically insane. I think it's better than Mulholland Drive. Patricia Arquette, Baltazar Getty, Bill Pullman. It is an absolutely fantastic movie. And 
here's the clincher. This actually kind of inspired Michael Haneke's Cachet, which mm. Lafka awarded for Best Foreign Language Film to uh, some years later. Michael Haneke in Cachet is riffing on this, not just the weird gimmick of getting a videotape of somebody who has uh, you know, recorded you, mm-hmm. but there are character names and there are all kinds of interesting things. Our, our colleague Andy Klein oh, yes. really, you know, Andy goes to town when oh, he yeah. senses a, con- a movie conspiracy and he's like, oh, there's a puzzle going on and he goes nuts on Lynch films yeah. and then Cachet just lit into a whole different fuse. There's, there's lineage, there's sinew that connects Lost Highway to Michael Haneke's Cachet. Mm. Get them both, Watch them both. It'll blow your mind. Oh, man. Fantastic. Uh, a couple of TVs. Yeah. Uh, season one of New Amsterdam, a series that I did not watch. Yeah. Uh, uh, stars, <laughs> starring a guy named Ryan Eggle who's on a series called Blacklist, which I also did not watch. Uh, nevertheless, I could see that this is one of those uh, doctor drama series. i got to tell you, the reason why I didn't watch this is because I'm burned on doctor drama series. Great 15 I years know. of Grey's Anatomy. I hear you. You know, and I go back to Medical Center with Chad Everett. Right. You know, and all, so it's not like I'm a guy that taps out easy on these things. I was a St. Elsewhere man. And it seems to me that, the, you know, ER, right, you know, right through ER, all of them, it seems to me sure. that these contemporary series are all amalgamations of some of those earlier series that gave us, you know, Denzel Washington came out of St. Elsewhere and, and all that kind of stuff. They all seem saying this is about a crusading young doctor in some, some urban hospital who doesn't like the way things are done, so he's going to shake things up. The tagline, break the rules, heal the system. And I don't know, I, I can't, there's another one on about the good doctor, about the doctor who has, what, Down syndrome or something. I don't know what he has, but he has something. Uh, he's ADD. And I'm like, I just, you know what, enough with the doctors. Yep. <laughs> and, and, you know, break it, because none of it actually uh, plays out in the real world. Nevertheless, uh, I, I understand that folks who yep. like this actually like it quite a lot. Bonus features include some deleted scenes. Uh, the Spanish uh, Princess, which is an interesting period, in, in any case, uh, during the the, the Tudor period, as we watch Catherine uh, Aragon, yeah. Catherine Aragon, she who was Spanish, and she's trying to negotiate this British hierarchy. Yep. Uh, uh, as these families did th- that thing that they do, where they swapped princesses and married them off, and all this kind of, mostly to try to create situations that would would stave off war. Uh, which is why the English uh, royal family has yeah. a whole bunch of Germans. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. When you look at this, like, it's because they married. They had to do that, man. And, and and let me tell you, that saved my family's life. Yeah, I've never shared this on this show before, but you know, my mother was a World War II refugee. My mother was born in Prussia and uh, Pomeranian, and they they fled the collapse of the Eastern Front. And my grandfather, who lost everything, lost his farm and the whole thing. He said, as they're going on the back roads with these columns of refugees, he said, um, the only way we're going to escape the Russians, our only safe haven, will be to go to Hanover, mm. the city of Hanover. He said, because that is where the British royal family traces their roots. Yeah. The British will never let the Russians take Hanover. Yeah. And he was right. They yeah. went to Hanover. And it wound up in the British zone. Yeah, man. It's just, yeah, there it's, it is. Yeah, yeah, fascinating, these histories. The things that we think we know yeah. about the lineage, lineages yeah. of humans, you know, uh, get that DNA test and, uh, and blow your mind. Uh, Jamestown, uh, from the makers of Down Abbey, this is the third complete se- season. You know, It's getting thin. It, 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 well, it's, it's becoming a soap thin. opera. Yeah. Know, it's, all about, it's, it's all about people the, the cheating women. on other people. It's and all about the women. You know, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and, and I'm like, that's, 
That's unfortunate that they didn't hold on to that sort of down Abbey sort of strain there, whatever. Anyway, Tom Cullen and Mark uh, uh, Hamill. And I love Mark, watching Mark. Uh, I, it's funny that the last 20 years of Mark Hamill's career, to me, are infinitely more interesting than that first 20 that began with Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, the characters uh-huh. and all the stuff. Right, even, even through you know, playing, playing that character again in the last, last movie or two. Yeah. He's just doing his voice work, all that kind of stuff. Far and away more interesting than watching him running around that original Star Trek movie in which he cannot act at all. I will not say anything mean about Mark Hamill because he's a neighbor and I, I, I run right up and through the, <laughs> through the driveway every time I go on a jog and his wife is lovely and they are they are fantastic people. But season two of this is very good. <laughs> Nightfall. And like I said, last 20 years, been killing it. Mark Hamill, been killing it. Uh, do, do you know this film, the Vidago Palace? Oh, 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 uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Serious, yeah. I should say. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Vidago Palace, the uh, from Acorn TV. Uh, it's, it takes place in Portugal. It's uh, it's a it's a British production, but it is uh, it takes place in 1936 Portugal, and the uh, it's sort of like uh, a Portuguese version of the. Um, Oh, I don't want the 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 the, the hotel, the Brit, the Indian. Oh, hotel. Uh, the first Marigold, Marigold blah, blah, Hotel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's there's a there's a palace in uh, in Portugal where everybody kind of uh, goes to vacation, and then there, you know, the, you you intersect that with the Spanish Civil War in 1936, and uh, throw in a really soapy relationship, and there it is. You know what? It's um, I mean, it's it's period. It's beautifully done. It's very very soapy. Uh, it's very much a melodramatic r- uh, romance, but uh, it, you know it has a it has a it has a nice sheen to it. Uh, it's like I don't know, Jewel in the Crown, set in yeah. Portugal, is, is a way of doing it. Anyway, yeah, Vitigo Palace um, for on on Acorn TV. Um, I want to take us out with uh, oh yeah yeah yeah. The, yeah well, we, we just real super duper quickly, fiftieth fiftieth anniversary, fiftieth anniversary edition, the best of the Carol Burnett show. 50, the big giant box, sort of golden box with this red thing. This is how this is how cocky the folks are who put it, who are putting this out. Uh, there is no mention whatsoever of a single episode that's inside this box because they know that they can put almost any episode <laughs> inside this box and it will be one that's right. of the best of the Carol Burnett show because they're all freaking fantastic. So they don't have to put on oh episode this and episode that doesn't make any difference what episode it is. It's one of the it's one of the best. Brilliant. Uh, and it's fantastic. 50th anniversary edition, the best of the Carol Burnett show, a remastered. It looks fantastic. Uh, good stuff. Uh, I've, we're going we're gonna to cover that again, by the way, on the on the gift guide uh, yeah. later on uh, this year when we put all of our big box sets together. Uh, so we've got. I'm going to go out and take us out with uh, four Blu-rays from the Warner Archive collection, and then two from Flickr Alley. This I'm going to take you right into some beautiful film history here. First off, from the Warner Archive collection on Blu-ray is uh, Footlight Parade. Uh, which is most famous for featuring some of Busby Berkeley's most amazing numbers. Tim knows that I've got a whole thing going with Busby Berkeley mm. for another show. But um, the Footlight Parade was uh, the follow-up to 42nd Street, which really, really kind of, uh, in many respects, saved the Warner Brothers musical uh, department. Uh, 42nd Street got nominated for Best Picture, and next thing you know, all the same people show up on Footlight Parade, Along with James Cagney. Yeah. And James Cagney was a gangster guy before that, and Warner Brothers finally acceded to his wishes to, to, to show that he could dance. He because he started his entire career in vaudeville dancing. That's it. You know, he's a, I'm a, he's a musical guy. So he lost the gun, and here he, he plays a, an impresario who um, 
who you know movies are changing. Yeah. Sound is coming in, and you can't have these. these this this live, is nineteen thirty three or so. Thirty three. You can't have these live dance numbers anymore in uh, in front of your silent films. You got to have talkies. And he decides, you know what? The prologue. I'm going to start shooting film prologues. I'm going to do big musical numbers, and and you'll just attach those to the head of your movies, and there it is. And that's an excuse. Uh, Lloyd Bacon, the, the director, yeah, the director he, yeah. he, he leaves, and Busby Berkeley comes in and does these elaborate numbers. And and uh, two of them are absolutely fantastic. Now, Shanghai Lils, which is the one that ends it, is politically very incorrect. There's yeah, a lot a, of nowadays, Asian stereotyping in there, it. Yeah. It, it, but it's 1933. Yeah, but yeah, but it's a beautifully it's a beautifully choreographed number, executed and number. And Cagney is amazing. Yeah. He's amazing in it. Uh, by by a, a mountain stream is incredible. It has all the, the 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 underwater sequences that sort of foreshadow what Berkeley would do uh, later on in the in the fifties. Really, just a fantastic film. And the Blu-ray is pristine and to die for. Because you can actually see on Dick Powell's collar, you can see a <laughs> fly in a couple of scenes. I was sitting there right in front of the TV on the 4K, and 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 I'm like, "There's a fly on his shoulder," and now it's now it's on his ear, and, I was, and I'm watching the fly. I'm not even paying attention to Dick Powell anymore. It's hysterical. I'll do Dick Powell, John Blondell, Ruben uh, Keeler. Uh, the, the cast is ridiculous. It's great, and uh, and you know these were all stock players for Warner Brothers at the time. Uh, we also have, speaking of stock players, the uh, immortal William Powell and Myrna Loy in none other than The Thin Man. Yes. I want him to put the rest of The Thin Man movies out. Do it as a box set, darn it all. But uh, nonetheless, W.S. Van Dyke just directs the daylights out of these two. The dialogue goes a mile a minute. There is no, there is, there has never been a team that compared to these two in terms of spitting out dialogue. Uh, Nick and Nora Charles doing their doing their detective thing with dialogue that is just to die for. You cannot believe how good it is. It just it's it's magical. Yeah. It's just a magical, magical pairing. Uh Myrna Loy and William Powell just killing it. Um and then we've also got Merrill's Marauders, which is remarkably a true story. Uh this is uh this is a movie that's kind of disappeared a, a tiny bit from from film history. Perhaps because it was the same year as Lawrence of Arabia and a lot of other, you know, amazing movies, 1962, uh, a Samuel Fuller movie that's all about the uh, jungle warfare in Burma and uh, specifically a very, very famous unit that was that was known as Merrill's Marauders, which is the 55307th composite unit. Um, but it's a it's a, you know, it's a great Samuel Fuller movie. If you've seen Bridge in the River Kwai, which David Lean did in the late 50s uh, and 57. You know, you you it has a bit of that feel, but it's still it's a Samuel Fuller film, and uh, it's an awful lot of fun, and it's beautifully shot, and has some really really great performances in it, including Andrew Dugan and Claude Akins. Yeah, good old Claude Akins. Um, and then uh, Clint Eastwood's Bronco Billy. Oh wow! Which I can't believe this is now a classic, but this is out on Blu-ray finally. Uh, should have probably been a special edition at some point, but Clint was dating Sandra Locke at the time, who was also in the film. And uh, this is Clint in kind of his lighter, lighter mode, uh, poking fun at himself a little bit in his in his western uh, his western roots. Um, Clint directed it uh, and does a great job. He's funny. His timing is great. Playing kind of a, a sharpshooter in a Wild West show, you know, he he gets to he gets to do a lot of things he doesn't do in a lot of other movies. It was one of the first movies that Clint actually uh, played the piano and sang. Right? I know. Uh, well, painter, painter. He's, he's stretching. He's spreading yeah. his wings. And then I'm going to take everybody out on a couple of amazing new titles from uh, Flickr Alley, two silent classics that you absolutely must not miss. The first, uh, I'm going to go with the more recent one first, from 1929, 
the last silent film by a very famous Soviet filmmaker, a famous Russian-Soviet filmmaker at the time, by the name of Friedrich Ermler, with, who, who doesn't really have a place in the pantheon of Eisenstein mm, and all the rest Tchaikov, of it. Tchaikov, 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 yeah. And, yeah, and Ziga Vertov and yeah, a lot of these others. But... but um, it's it's still a really really interesting film. It's a very very daring film. It it almost feels more like a German film in some respects from the uh, the, the 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 silent era. Uh, has a kind of Weimar vibe to it in many respects. It's about a, a soldier with amnesia from the Great War and uh, you know who's been shell shocked into amnesia. Has a lot to say about war. Has a lot. It's it's more sort of individualistic than what you would get from somebody like Eisenstein from the same period. Um, it's a it's a really superb film. Also has uh, a couple of musical scores on it, both of them excellent, and a whole bunch of uh, extras, including a commentary track with uh, Russian film historian uh, Peter Bagrov and film restoration guy Robert Byrne, who's who's got some great things to say too. Mm. Uh, the real gem here is L'Argent by the director Marcel Lherbier, L apostrophe H-E-R-B-I-E-R. Uh, this is a- adapted from the Emile Zola from 1928. And um, the uh, this was kind of a lost film until they put it back together again in the 1970s and uh, kept on working on it. And finally in the 1990s, it got its, uh, it got its proper restoration thanks to financing from Lobster Films. And here it is. You know, uh, for decades, this thing has never been seen in anything less than kind of a, a, a horrendous form. And we get the complete two and a half hour L'Argent with all of its Zolian. Is that even a word? I mean, Zoli? <laughs> it is now. Anyway, it is now. Zolian glory. Uh, really just a superb epic story. It is all, you know, like much much of Zola, it's all about the. Uh, it's a 19th century story that tells all about a bank collapse and. Uh, you know, it's using that as a, as a story of rich and poor and all the social conditions that plagued France at the time. Uh, and as a silent film that, that you know, overcomes the, the handicap of not having uh, dialogue, it tells a remarkably uh, epic story with great detail. And uh, it is absolutely a beautiful, beautiful effort. It's beautifully restored. And uh, that is L'Argent from 1928 from uh, Flickr Alley. Flickr Alley, L'Argent. And uh, the equally superb fragment of an empire from 1929. All right, with that, we are done this week, uh, and we will be uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully with uh, more great trailers for mm. films from the fall.